Welcome, everyone, to this joint podcast between the McDonnell Laurie Institute, the University of Toronto Centre for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, and Up North Magazine. My name is Marcus Kolga. Over the past six months, the world has been closely following the unfolding saga of Russian anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny, who was poisoned by Russian FSB agents in August before boarding a flight from Tomsk to Moscow. When he became violently ill, the flight was thankfully diverted to Omsk, where doctors were able to begin treating Alexei Navalny, saving his life before being transported to Berlin, where he was recovering until late last month. He returned to Russia in January and was promptly arrested for violating his parole. Last week, a Moscow judge sentenced Alexei Navalny to three and a half years in prison for violating his parole while recovering in Berlin, a steep punishment for surviving the Kremlin's attempt to kill him. Most recently, an explosive new Bellingcat report was released that revealed that the same FSB poisoning hit squad that had followed and poisoned Alexei Navalny had earlier followed Russian pro-democracy activist and journalist Vladimir Karmurza, who has twice been poisoned to within a hair of his life. Both Alexei Navalny and Vladimir Karmurza, along with other Russian opposition leaders, including Garry Kasparov, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, and the late Boris Nemtsov, have all asked Western nations to hold the Putin regime to account by imposing Magnitsky sanctions, including Canada, which has been reluctant to do so. With me today is Vladimir Shurkov. He is the executive director of the Anti-Corruption Foundation and a close colleague of Alexei Navalny's. He joins us from London. Thank you, Vladimir, for taking the time from your extremely busy schedule to join us. Your colleague, Alexei Navalny, returned to Moscow from Berlin on January 17th. The outcome was his immediate arrest at the border, and that was predictable. He now faces some three years in a remote gulag labor camp. Knowing this, many people in Canada are asking why. Why did he return and why right now? It wasn't a calculation. It was more of a moral choice. Alexei, the work of his life is in Russia. The organization that he built is in Russia. The millions of supporters of his cause, of himself, of our organizations are, are in Russia. He didn't do anything wrong. So it was only natural that he would return to Russia. It's in his character. It's in his strategy. He didn't think twice about it. You are saying that this was predictable, his incarceration. It wasn't a surprise, and we discussed this, and he prepared for this scenario, but it wasn't 100% certain. And I think the authorities really shoot themselves in the foot by doing this. It's not for their benefit. And the way it was done in a makeshift court, in a police station, really was a mockery of justice both in terms of the letter of the law and the way this process was conducted. Are you concerned about his safety in prison right now? Of course I'm concerned. Russian security services poisoned him in a hotel room in Siberia. It seems like it wasn't the first attempt at poisoning him. We know that they are capable of conducting assassinations in other countries, so it would be much easier for them to do it in a prison where everything is controlled by them. So, yes, I am concerned. If you look at the pattern, they tried to make the poisoning, and it seemed like Navalny's poisoning fits a pattern of other poisonings, suspicious poisonings, uh, that are linked to the Russian security services. It seemed like it was important for them to maintain deniability and to not to make it too obvious. In if they try to do something bad to Alexei in a prison, this would be obvious. 
was behind it. So I hope that is some sort of protection. But of course, I'm concerned. So in 2012, Boris Nemtsov said right here in Canada that the most pro-Russian action that a Western government can take to support Russian civil society and human rights and activists like Alexei is to adopt Magnitsky sanctions. You and your team have published a list of names that you've asked the EU, US, UK, and Canada to add to their sanctions list. And that includes those who tried, of course, to kill Alexei, but it includes individuals like Roman Abramovich, who has significant assets in Canada, and Oleg Deripaska, who at one point had a $1.5 billion stake in Canadian auto parts manufacturer Magna. Why these names specifically? And why is it important for governments like Canada to place sanctions on them and others on your list? Alexei and our team have for years advocated personal sanctions against the people who are involved in corruption and human rights abuse in Russia. And the individuals that you list, Abramovich, Usmanov, Deripaska, they all are a part of a small group of extremely wealthy people who are involved in corruption, not in the 90s, not 15 years ago, but right now. I, through my business background, I have a lot of contacts in Russia's business elite, let's put it this way. And there are people who are telling me now that how it works is there's this concept of homework. So the president's administration summons somebody like Abramovich and tells him, well, your homework for this year is to allocate $300 million to various slush funds that we have. There's a slush fund of supporting the security officers because their official salary is too low, but we top it up with envelopes of cash or apartments, etc., etc. Allocate $100 million to it. There is a slush fund for our covert operations abroad, including cyber operations, the fancy bears, the goosefers of this world, etc., etc. So you need to allocate... 100 millions to that. And I don't have a reason not to trust my sources, but I don't have concrete evidence of it. So if I did, we would make another investigation similar to the Putin's palace type. But I have no doubt that it goes on right now. And I'm sure that Western governments, with all their intelligence capabilities, they have tons of information linking these individuals to the corruption and the Russian assertiveness that we have seen over the last two years. So it only makes sense to sanction them. And the message that we want Western governments to send to these people is as follows. We believe that you are involved in some bad stuff. The right place for these potential crimes to be investigated and tried is Russia. Unfortunately, right now it's not possible because there is no independent judiciary system, there's no independent courts and law enforcement in Russia, and you are the people who had a hand in creating this situation in Russia. So for the time being, stay away from our country, stay away from our financial system, don't try to stick your money into our companies. We're not saying that you're criminals. We're not putting you on a trial. We're not throwing you in jail. Just stay away until your potential crimes can be investigated in your home country. That's all. I think that's a very reasonable thing to do. 
So others in the West, including Catherine Belton, who I'm sure you're familiar with, wrote a wonderful book, Putin's People, that was published last fall, has also mentioned these slush funds and how the network of oligarchs works with it and essentially enables the Putin regime and the repression that it's engaging in right now. So would you believe, from all of your experience and all of your investigations with Alexei Navalny, do you believe that the assets that these oligarchs might be holding outside of Russia? that they are part of this network of slush funds and the assets and the funds that help enable the regime? You know, every person, every businessman analyst, he has hundreds of millions of dollars in case of Abramovich or Smanov, it's, it's billions. They have pretty sophisticated investment holding structure and they use the funds and the profits from their various assets, including the assets in the West and including assets in Canada and profits from their assets in Canada to fund these covert operations. I have no doubt about that. Well, now we're hearing that Sergei Lavrov is threatening to cut ties with the EU if the EU applies new sanctions. Do you think that this is a sign that these sorts of targeted sanctions are actually working? Because the sanctions that are in place right now, they're not sectoral. We're not targeting the entire energy sector or specific sectors. The sanctions that we're talking about, you know, Magnitsky sanctions, target those individuals. So is Lavrov's overreaction, is that a sign that these sanctions are working? I don't attribute a lot of significance and value to words. I don't even know what it means to the labor words to disassociate itself from Europe. I mean, Russia's most important export, the gas and oil, primarily goes to European countries. If these trade flows are cut, Russian budget will be cut in probably half. So I don't really know what he talks about when he talks about this cutting the ties. I think it's just a rhetoric. Okay. You bring up energy, though, and there's been some grumbling about potentially terminating the Nord Stream 2 project. Is this something that the EU should really consider? And do you think that will help change the behavior of the regime? We always advocated only personal sanctions against people who are directly involved in corruption and human rights abuse. We never advocated sanctions against industries or sanctions against specific projects. This is internal political decision of respective countries. So I don't have a position on Nord Stream. I trust the Western political process and the Western thinking to resolve itself. There are so many strategic considerations that go into this decision. I would think at this point that Nord Stream is not happening, but what remains to be seen. So just to turn focus towards the protests that have been happening over the past few weeks. How surprised were you and your team by the turnout, given the threats of mass repression, of course, the very cold weather? And do you expect the same momentum to continue on in the spring when those protests resumes? You know, we know that the Duma parliamentary elections are scheduled for September. Is there any hope that this movement could positively affect the outcome of those elections? The protests were indeed somewhat unprecedented in the breadth with people over 100 cities in Russia turned out. The total number was over 200,000, which was on par with the mass protests over the last few years, if not exceeding that. I haven't been to Russia in seven years, so it's 
more difficult for me to comment on exactly what goes on there. I see a lot more young people on the streets. I see a lot more angry people on the streets. The coming elections, our overall approach to the elections is that even though we realize that the political system is very repressed and it's controlled by the authorities, national level, on the regional level, still the elections are a point of uncertainty for the regime, a point of distress, and we intend to use it in this way. And we have a system of tactical voting called smart voting, and this system has been quite effective in several regional elections. We hope to replicate it on the national level this fall, and we hope to get a few or ideally a few dozen candidates in the parliament. So whatever happened over the last month after Alexa returned is not the end in itself. We never expected that things will so quickly lead to change in how Russia is governed. We are braced for a long fight, but we are confident that the direction is in the right way and change in political structure in Russia will come probably sooner than many people realize. Well, I think a lot of us were quite surprised in the lead up to the first protests on that weekend, seeing a lot of these young Russians post videos on TikTok and social media about how to effectively stand up to authorities and such. And you mentioned the youth and that there were a lot of angry Russians. Russians are angry right now. Why is this phenomenon happening? Why are youth taking to the streets? You know, we've seen the terrible way that the authorities have cracked down on them. Some videos where from the last protests where a group of youth were cornered by authorities and pretty violently beaten and dragged off and arrested. What's motivating youth and what's motivating people to come out to the streets, braving that sort of oppression? And of course, that very cold weather. What's behind this? Well, unfortunately, in Russia, all the usual mechanisms of feedback between the society and the authorities, like free mass media, like representative political system, independent judiciary, they all have been usurped or falsified. So there's no channel for people to express their discontent with something. The only thing that's left is mass protest, unfortunately. And that's what has been motivating people, especially young people, for whom the prospects of the future is really quite bleak. The living standards are either deteriorating or stagnating. There is no idea that Putin's government is implementing or focusing. There is no program. There is no vision. And it's mostly just focusing on the events of the past and the glorious history of Russia, but nothing for the future. The social lifts have been dismantled. The economy is more and more state-owned, state-controlled or controlled by cronies of Mr. Putin. So that's what motivates people to get to the streets. And I wish it was a different. I wish people could participate in local election campaigning. I wish people would hear truth from national TV channels, but it's not happening. So with the mass crackdown, with over 10,000 people 
put in prison now, or at least arrested during those protests, it strikes me that Vladimir Putin, instead of trying to work with his people and help them, it seems that his primary motivation is to just remain in power. So the question would be that beyond sanctions, is there anything else that Western governments can do? What should we be doing? How should we be reacting? There's some people in Canada who are saying that we should now start to think about restoring normal relations with Putin. Is that something that we should consider? Or, you know, what would be your suggestion? How should we be approaching the Putin regime right now? Well, a reset has been tried before. I don't think it has worked. If we talk about sanctions specifically, There is no silver bullet the West can use to change Russia's behavior. Sanctions is one of a few existing mechanisms to affect it. By implementing sanctions against the culprits of corruption and human rights abuse, Canada and other Western countries would not just be helping Russia. It's not a charity. The main motivation, I think, for the West in implementing these sanctions is their own interests. If the West would have been less tolerant to the flows of dirty money from Russia over the last 20 years and would have put stops to people like Abramovich, Usmanov, Shuvalov, Kostin, then we probably would have seen a less assertive and aggressive Mr. Putin. He would have thought twice before annexing Crimea or fomenting unrest in eastern Ukraine, which left over 10,000 people dead by now and counting. He would think twice before interfering in elections in U.S., but also in other countries. If he thought that the people on whom rely on, who have assets in the West, who have families in the West, who like to take vacations in Miami and Côte d'Azur, they would not be happy because their dirty dealings and dirty money is well policed by the Western countries. Well, Vladimir, thank you so much. There's a lot to think of here, and I hope that Canadian policymakers listen to this podcast. I think you've given some incredible insights here into how Canada might respond to what's going on in Russia right now, and certainly down in the future. We'll be keeping an eye on Alexei's case and those protests. I wish you and your team the best of luck, and I hope that you all remain safe. Thank you for all the work that you're doing, and hopefully we'll be able to connect again soon. Thank you, Marcos. Stay in touch.